excited to be back with you again today uh, with another bonus episode as we address this COVID-19 um, challenge. And, you know, we've walked through some different interviews. We began with talking about the fear and anxiety that comes with this process. Then we moved from there um, on to an interview with Dr. Heather Martin on how parents can take care of their kids during this trying time and the concerns. And she gave some great, valuable insight. Moved from there to talk with Buona Chad about caring for our emotional and spiritual needs of our, our kids, whether they're living at home with us or living back in the United States or wherever they're at. And then we spent some time with um, Andy Rotz, who has walked through COVID, walking through COVID, and to get a personal insight. And uh, that was super valuable. And then uh, re- Monday, we had an interview with Pastor Arnold Bracey on how to, um, for safety and security in times of crisis. So today we had the great opportunity to sit down and um, spend some time with two friends. Um, Dick Foth and I did an interview last week, and he's become a, a fast friend and uh just full of wisdom and insight. And he is friends with John Ashcroft. And so um, we began to talk about um, interviews. And normally when I get done interviews, I say, hey, do you know anybody that might be a good interview or be willing to invest in in missionaries around the world or or listeners um, wherever they're at? And uh, he said, yeah, I think uh, John will be open to that. Let's see if it'll work. And so Dick organized it. um, And we're so thankful for that. And so him and I sit down. We sit down and have a conversation with John um, on leading a crisis, what it means to be leading through challenges, because John's been the Attorney General for the United States, powerful position in the middle of 9-11. Then also, he was a governor of of the state of Missouri before that, and so he's led through many trying times and some valuable insight from a Christian perspective, so you're not going to want to miss it. You're going to want to take notes, I'm sure. Um, If you're a leader, if you're leading at home, you're leading at work, um, or you're leading in in a ministry context, John provides some valuable insight for each and every one of us. And so there's no time better now to get started. So here we go. So excited to be here today on the Clarity Podcast on another special episode as we address this COVID situation of, of crisis and the challenge that is facing us. And today we have the honor and the pleasure to have two distinguished guests with us. And um, we have Dick Foth and General John Ashcroft. Um, general John Ashcroft could be called many different things. He's been a governor. He's been the attorney general for the United States and has had many different um, positions. And um, Dick, um, Dick and I had a conversation uh, a week or so ago. And as we were talking and um, we were talking about someone that could help us learn about Christ being a leader in crisis, he talked about his relationship with John. Dick, could you go ahead and just um, share a little bit about yourself and then introduce your good friend John um, to the audience? I'm a California guy who in my earliest years spent a few years with missionary parents in in South India. Then when I was eight years old, we moved to Springfield, Missouri for a year. Lived on William Street near what used to be Central Bible Institute, then college. And three doors up was a kid named John David. That was in the summer of 1950 is when we met. So John and I have been friends for 70 years. I just had my 78th birthday. John's coming up on it. It's the only place I'm ahead of General John. I'm <laughs> too much older than he is. So that's, that's where we are. But uh, for this conversation, John, uh, I just wanted to establish a little bit of our relationship. And uh, what, what was your first memory of our meeting? I, I don't know that I could come up with that, but we could fabricate something that at summer of 1950. Well, as a person of substantial political experience, fabrication is one of my strong points. However, I'm coming up a little shallow. 
in fabrication <laughs> right now. I, I just, you know, uh, we, uh, we, we were in and out of each other's houses. Our mothers yelled at, my mother yelled at you, your mother yelled at me, your father uh, became a good friend of mine through the years uh, and uh, your entire family. So it's hard. I can't. I can't remember. I I remember things we did together, whether it was fishing for crawdads or pollywogs or, or catching frogs, and and I remember the time when we sought to keep a number of them in the basement at your house. Yeah. The water went stagnant. The well, the uh, embryonic frogs died, and. Uh, I think that may have been part of the motive for your father deciding to leave basements. So, so that next year we moved to California. You stayed there. I graduated high school in Oakland. You graduated high school in Springfield. I went to Cal Berkeley. You went to Yale. Long story short, we graduated from, I graduated from Bethany College and we, we contact, made contact again, although we had made contact over the years when you were a grad student at University of Chicago Law School, school and I was uh, at Wheaton College. So uh, for, the, for the listeners, over the years, John and I have been uh, in small groups and other kinds of things that uh, allowed us to maintain this relationship in a, in a very, um, I think, fertile and productive way. So John, I'm gonna toss this to Aaron to, sort of tee things up with a question, and then he and I will join in and sort of double teaming with regard to questions. That'd be all right? Yeah, two of you uh, may suit my disposition to speak out of both sides of my mouth. Who knows? I can answer. <laughs> I'll do my best to answer the questions. Okay. John, uh, General John, as we, we are looking at the, the theme of this podcast specifically is leading in crisis. And uh, many times our, our missionaries that are serving around the world are leading in situations that are in with this COVID situation are, are challenged and in the midst of crisis. And we want to help them and help uh, me too find some uh, clarity in the midst of the ambiguity of leading in crisis. What are some things that you learned as you led through 9-11 and when you were go the governor of the state of Missouri? What are some things that you learned and some wisdom you would have for the listeners on how to lead in the midst of crisis? Well, it, certainly around 9-11, there was uncertainty and there was a need for information. And so sharing information with a kind of transparency that gives people an understanding that they're getting the real story. Uh, people um, want to be uh, advised, they want to be instructed, they understand the need for a leader, but they don't want the leader to be a person who keeps them in the dark and who, uh, who doesn't share with them the uh, sort of the facts, the circumstances, and, and uh, the opportunity to respond. Another thing that people expect in a time of crisis is they want to know that there's something they can do. Um, they don't want to uh, be told just uh, that there's, there's, there's no role for them to play. Uh, in this crisis with uh, the COVID-19 uh, uh, or what they call the coronavirus, 
people, one of the things they can do is to not do what they normally do, and but there are things that they should be doing. Um, those are those are just fundamental things. They want information. They want transparency. They want a level of certainty, but they want a kind of uh, integrity. They don't want the leader to act like he or she is more knowledgeable than he or she is. Uh, people don't want to think that the leader is in some way obscuring the circumstances or his own um, situation. So those are the kinds of things that people expect of a leader and they expect and, and consistency. Uh, you know, the, this is the Easter season right here. Uh, um, this week is the Easter week and I'm thinking of Jesus as a leader and, and even when he went to the cross, he, he continued to instruct and to be an example of uh, what he believed and what he stood for, even with what he did and said while he was being crucified. I mean, forgiveness was a big theme of the master. The first thing he said on the cross was forgive them. Uh, so leadership is, uh, you know, some people say that crisis determines character. Other people, I think, more accurately say that crisis reveals character. And I think we should all want our character be, to be such that when the crisis comes, it reveals uh, a kind of uh, uh, consistent uh, foundation that we have uh, sought to live by as we have done our work. So John, when, uh, when President George W. Bush turned to you in that first meeting, whatever that was, I don't know if it was a full cabinet meeting or you with the intelligence community, and he said, uh, John, uh, never again, never again can this happen. What, was the, what were the first two or three things that came into your mind when you had to go back to the Justice Department you got 150,000, 130,000 employees, U.S. attorneys, all this sort of thing, FBI. What, what were you thinking when he, after that statement, where did you go in your mind and your heart? Well, I don't remember him saying, John, I just remember him looking in my direction and said, don't ever let this happen again. And I took it as he, if it were. He didn't even he didn't to me. General John. <laughs> you know, no, he, uh, uh, he, as a matter of fact, in, in his more uh, informal times, he called me ashy. But yeah. uh, I, I just, he just looked in my direction. Don't ever let this happen again. It was my responsibility to be in charge of the FBI at that time and uh, uh, in charge of all immigration and naturalization. You know? the drug control agencies and the prison systems and other, the uh, kinds of things associated with the justice community. So domestic security was kind of in the portfolio for which I had responsibility. And I thought to myself, we, you know, we're going to have to marshal uh, uh, information and, and activity on the part of every community possible. Uh, and uh, we were very concerned about the next wave of terrorism that 
might happen. So we were concerned that um, we would keep someone who might be thinking of doing another series of acts that they would know this would be a bad time. So we got, we really got people from all across the department involved in, in highly visible things that signaled this would be a bad time to try something else in America. And that included conducting interviews and, and uh, being very active in the community that was represented so uh, substantially in those who committed the acts of terror. So, so you knew what your, what your realm of responsibility was. How did you personally, and this is a question that came from one of the listeners knowing you were going to be on. Uh, the question is, what were the best ways you found during that season, those months? And, and I had the privilege of being um, in D.C. at the same time this happened. So we spent a fair amount of time together. And I watched this a bit. What are the best ways that you have learned and that you did learn to manage the panic and anxiety that comes with moments of huge uncertainty and when those moments can paralyze and incapacitate you as a leader, what were the best ways that you learned to manage that? Well, there are a couple of good ways to do that. One is not to try and do everything alone. Uh, um, if you have staff or you have people that you can talk to and confer with, you do that. You ask God to help you. I mean, I remember that verse that when we were in our devotion together, we memorized it. it said, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's kind of a long verse, but it carries you from carefulness which i think in the old king james version means full of care to peace from panic to peace and the and the the uh, transport between panic and peace is prayerfulness with thanksgiving and inviting the help of god and i think inviting the help of god's people also is comforting then i then a second thing to do is, is start doing something you know um i think you should be considered about what you're doing but i think you have to be careful that you don't say well now i've got to wait until the i've got the perfect plan that can't have any flaws in it before we act the the perfect can be the uh the friend of uh, paralysis and it can be the enemy of doing something that's good and plan B that is implemented is far better than a perfect plan A, which never makes it off the shelf. So I guess you gathering resources, taking action and asking God for help. Those are things that, and there's a kind of a, a strange thing that happened to me. Uh, it was clear to me that there was probably more than I could do in several lifetimes. And uh, so, there's a way in which you do everything you can. And then when you're finished with, you know, when you come to the end of that day, you have to, you get rest. 
uh, if 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 instead of having a a, a job which was a thousand percent of my capacity, I'd have had a job which was one hundred and two percent of my capacity, I might have killed myself trying to get the last two percent. Uh, this is sort of strange to say, but there is some comfort in knowing that the job is so much bigger than you are that you have to take your best shot at it, get rest, and come up and take another best shot at it the next day. I remember the the day of the attack on 9-11 at, uh, obviously I was in an airplane that had left early Washington, D.C. on my way to Milwaukee to read to school children and a part of a program to encourage literacy and uh, got back to Washington. They started, headed me for the um, sort of hole in the ground, the undisclosed location for the continuity of government. The traffic was so bad. I said, I'm not going there. I'm getting back to headquarters. We've got to mobilize our defense. And, but I was up until at midnight, I was briefing members of the United States Congress. When, I, when you work hard enough to, that you can barely stay awake from exhaustion, that helps, that helps you sleep, as well as knowing that there's a big job tomorrow. So, and asking God to, to help you is, uh, is a part of doing that. General John, when you were going through this process of 9-11 and the different challenges and crises you have faced, what, how have you learned in that? How have you grown in those areas and how have you learned to learn in those times so that it's not, it's not repeated again? Um, are there certain things you've put into place so you can learn through a crisis and learn through a challenge uh, and grow? Yeah, I really think a, a lot of that is asking for help. Um, and most of the time, I, when I, I want to learn when I'm doing something wrong just before I do it, uh, not just after I've done it. And so when I ask for advice on the way in, rather than approval on the way out, then I can make a correction in time to avoid that. And one of the things I've learned is that uh, asking for advice on the way in is really a superior way to, to, to run things. So I, I have always enjoyed the, the, a great gift of God. I consider it to be a real gift of God that I've had excellent staff and friends who were willing to confer with me and I've called upon them. And I think, you know, there's a, I, I'm one of the guys who sort of flunked out of Sunday school, uh, and I certainly don't have biblical training, but there's a, a place in the Bible that talks about there's a wisdom in, in having counselors and thinking uh, and assuming that you're, you and yourself, you, you, you yourself, pardon me, it, it represents an adequate resource is almost always dangerous. And it may, it may even be instructive that Jesus was not a loner. I mean, he had a group of people that he, uh, that helped him, that supported him, that encouraged him, not just the disciples. Uh, there were, there was a community of people that did it. And I, I think the, I need help may be one of the, one of the most important uh, statements a person can ever make. And I think that has something to do with the Beatitudes. Uh, I think the, I think uh, people who ask for help are blessed. 
and uh, I don't, George Wood had a really good series on the Beatitudes, and I think he said, "Blessed are the meek," and the meek maybe the people who said, uh, "No, let's see." I guess I shouldn't misquote George. He's too important a guy. But one of his beatitudes was, "I need help." The other was, "I'm strong, but I'm easy to get along with." I think that's the meek one. <laughs> well, John, um, I've I've seen you ask for help from your staff. I've been in just a couple of meetings, and you had hundreds of meetings with your staff. But <clears throat> it, it, when I watched you in action. When somebody gave advice, you just didn't take a note paper and write it down and say, well, thank you very much. Press people. You, my observation of you is you tend to engage and you don't let folks get away with platitudes or easy answers. You press them. I don't know if that's the lawyer in you or the Missouri roots in you, the show me state. Talk to me about that. Why do you press people? Well, like that? I, I think that's really... I think you're exactly right about that. People, I would invite people in to advise me, and then I would stress, that's the word I used for it, I would stress their responses. I would say, oh, the case, now does that work? If that's the case, there are, there are a couple values in that. One, that signals to them how they should deal with me when I've got ideas. They should ask me about variable uh, circumstances and and the uh, matrices of circumstance that might might uh, challenge the result that was being spoken of and secondly uh, signaling to people that they when they come in they should have thought in advance about what a, what a variety of uh, circumstances might transpire that would uh, render their, their advice either more or less efficacious or workable. And it, that always helped me. And we, we developed this sort of idea of stressing the various things. And it's like, it's like testing a product. And you, it's better tested in the manufacturing facility and on the line than it is when the consumer gets it. And it and it fails, uh, that's not satisfactory. That, that is also, a part of that is a result of how consequential your decision is. If your decision is gonna have significant consequences, some of the decisions we made had to, you know, international consequences as well as national. You wanna make sure that, that, that those uh, contingencies are pretty well examined before you talk are out there and then find out whoops didn't think about that so so let me let me pull a page and aaron's going to jump back in here i know but i i just butted in there aaron uh, <laughs> let me pull a page from the ashcroft book and and press you and say do i hear you saying that the way you pressed the people around you <clears throat> who were giving you advice gave them permission to press you back? Did I hear you say that? That, that was a model for how you wanted to interact with them, all, all respectful and all that. Yeah, I had to learn this. I have been a person who was pretty quick to conclusions. And um, 
there are some lawyers that in the department in particular who I would think I could, I could quickly go to uh, an analysis or an analytic viewpoint that would result in one decision. And they learned to say, well, well, not so fast there, General. Have you thought about this? And have you thought about that? I'm not saying they had uh, the same uh, identical approach or language that I did. They, I was generally a little bit more direct in saying, well, how about this? But they, they would move me to evaluate my own position. And this is a little bit like, uh, this technique is not to answer people's questions so much as it is to question people's answers. You, uh, you ask say, people say that, for, say that again. Uh, who are your friends for the, so Well, you know, when I'm teaching, I say that my job is not to, in teaching, my job is not to answer all your questions. It may be to question your answers, to ask you to think more carefully than you have thought previously. And uh, I think there's a way in which uh, good leadership asks lots of questions. Leadership is not just announcing conclusions. It's asking a lot of questions. And sometimes it's stressing those questions so that you ask questions and then you question answers. And, uh, and you hopefully arrive at something that's in, survived the gauntlet of, of inquiry. And when when that happens, I think that's that's where things are successful. General John, is there certain questions you lead with in a general crisis situation? Um, just some like go-to questions that you would use. Uh, I know I was talking to someone. They they said their first question, for example, is is this true? Before they, that's one of the first questions they ask somebody. Are there certain sets of questions you would ask somebody? In a crisis situation, or right off the, right in the beginning. Well, I think that if I think that is this true is an, always a good question, and uh, I, I think that's a good question to ask about your answers, as well as about as about you know the circumstances. Uh, I I tended to to be involved in settings where there was an undeniability about the crisis that I was dealing with, whether it was, I was a state attorney general, or I was a senator or the governor or the U.S. attorney general. There was, was a pretty, pretty clear, clear understanding about the crisis when we were dealing with crises. There are lots of things that require good questions and answers that aren't just crises though. And frankly, the best way to deal with a crisis is to avoid it. And the right questions and answers and the right reliance on staff and the right strategic uh, understanding of what your role is and responsibility is, have you avoiding crises rather than dealing with crises. And uh, a little bit reminded of Winston Churchill who said there's nothing quite as ennobling as to be shot at and missed. Well, it's a crisis if you get hit, but if you get missed, you've probably in, adopted the right posture just in time. And sometimes uh, a crisis avoidance, well, it'll almost always trump crisis management. So, so John, how do, you, how do you keep, given that scenario, how do you keep from compounding a crisis? 
we, you know, because we're in a situation today where everything's pretty much uncertain. The economy's uncertain, the health is uncertain. We're, we're having to do Zoom calls as opposed to face-to-face. -face. How do you keep um, from compounding something that's already, in this case, pretty horrific? Well, I, you know, one of the problems we have with the, the uh, coronavirus is that it is an undetected crisis in its early stages. And by the time you have the opportunity to address the crisis, it is, um, it, it's already well developed. And it is also, it, it grows exponentially in advance of any symptoms which signal the existence of the crisis. Mm. And so you have to, you have to, you have to be anticipatory uh, in, in your thinking. What I'm doing today has to be, uh, has to mitigate what will otherwise happen two or three weeks from now. And understanding the timelines of circumstances and the sort of maturing, the way in which they mature is really a, an important thing for managing something because it's pretty easy to say, well, I feel just fine now, so turn everybody loose. But you got to know that the first five days when a person is spreading this virus, um, the, it, people, all, all the people are asymptomatic. Mm. So they're out there spreading it before they know that they have it. Uh, that, that's always a problem in, in all kinds of human behavior. The more you separate the difficult or problem activity from the consequence, the, and you don't have clear linkage, the less, the more difficult it is to get buy-in for a solution. It's hard to tell people that, uh, um, that they're uh, doing something wrong and there's a problem if they don't see any consequence on the horizon. Reminds me of the story of the guys in the neighborhood in a big knife fight, and one of them swings at the other guy with his knife, and the guy says, ha ha, you missed me. And the, and, and the guy who swung the knife says, oh yeah, just try and shake your head. And it turns out he had, he had cut him pretty badly, but the consequence was not yet evident. And I think that's, that's one of the problems with this. Uh, we, you know, a lot of people are thinking, ha ha, you missed me. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, an exposure matures into a symptom which is generally five and a half, six, seven days, or as long as two weeks later. And uh, those, that makes crisis management very difficult. And that's where information is extremely important in helping people understand, these are the facts, this is how this unfolds. And we have to act now, not because of what the circumstance appears to be now, but because what the circumstance now is likely to develop or, or mature into which, uh, which needs remediation immediately instead of waiting for, uh, waiting for the, the, the uh, maturity of the crisis, which may be uh, irremediable at the time. General John, it's, uh, I come from a medical background, and I know, we know that people are uncomfortable from, with gaps in information. 
and we're uncomfortable. We'd rather fill in gaps of information with conspiracy theories or confabulations or something because we're more comfortable as long as that story is all the blanks are filled in. Is a leader, how have you found um, and what wisdom would you have for, for other leaders and listeners to not fill in blanks that you don't really have answers to just because it makes you feel more comfortable? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, there is something, except I didn't understand what the medical term confabulation meant, but I'll assume <laughs> that, that my the absence of medical training uh, will result in my uh, exp explaining my ignorance here. I think that, you know, I used to say going before congressional committees, if you acted like you knew everything, you they would keep you there and roast you and at some point they want to hear you say i don't know yeah. because the words i don't know uh and the confession of that enhances credibility substantially mm. and uh i think some of the things that are being done now in the briefings are important people are saying we just don't know yet we're basing this on extrapolations of data from other settings and we can't be sure and and when we, when the real facts become apparent, they will displace the models and the extrapolations. And that's a way of saying, you know, we're sharing with you in candor what the situation is. And we, we are um, enduring the uncertainties together. Uh, the sort of physical distancing, or I don't like the term social distancing because I like the idea of being socially proximate to people rather than feeling that I'm divorced from them. But there is a physical distancing, but but there is a togetherness, and I think when when there's a confession of what we don't know, first of all, the candor puts everybody on an equal footing. And secondly, it increases the credibility of the people who make the confession. The, the last thing that uh, uh, when I was before congressional committees or legislative committees during my time as a governor, uh, I would say, let, let me get back to you on that. When I find out about it, I'll make sure you know at the earliest possible moment. And uh, one of the things that's happening now, which I think is very helpful on the briefings that relate to the coronavirus is there's a continuity of briefing. It's not a one-shot deal like we're going to tell you this and then we'll come back. You know, there is, by the mere fact that there are daily briefings, there is a signal being sent that we will, we are being kept current and we are not being held in the dark. Uh, as a matter of fact, some people think we're getting too much information because every once in a while someone says, we hope to have this done by such and such time. And then if it doesn't transpire in that way, it's, it's chalked up to some sort of uh, absence of candor or integrity when it, matter of fact, they probably did hope, but the hope didn't, uh, didn't mature or materialize. So, the, so John, if I'm hearing correctly, you're saying that the leader doesn't have to be sure of all the circumstances. He should not, i.e., confabulate. He should not make stuff up or she to fill in the gaps. But the I didn't know you. I didn't know you had medical training, Dick. To use terms <laughs> like that. I, yeah, I was. I was. I, I was no. pre-med. 
I was pre-med my first year at Cal Berkeley oh. until I got five units of D in chemistry 1A and decided not <laughs> to help on the medical community. You know, I, well, I thought, I didn't know that confabulation came up before the graduate level courses, but maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does, you know. So, <laughs> but but what what I understand you to say is even though a leader may not be sure of all of the things all of the circumstances or pieces surrounding the crisis or embedded in the crisis, the people following need to be sure that the leader is gonna tell them the truth, is gonna, is gonna communicate with them consistently because um, in, a, in a relationship of any kind, silence is not golden. Silence is ambiguous. And so to keep hearing the voice of, uh, of reassurance and, I find it fascinating that you say that I don't know is one of the marks of a leader because it is the truth and because it, I don't know makes you more believable. That's a fascinating thought. Um, and I don't know that I'd ever thought that in just that way. And I'm old like you are, you know, so I've been around the sun quite a few times, you and I together, we got about a hundred and, 50 some trips around the sun. And I don't know that I'd ever thought about that in just that way. So. Well, no, you, yeah. there, there have been times when, I think there have been times when you would agree with me, you've heard someone sort of um, fabricating, maybe not confabulating, but fabricating a story and you're saying, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just making that up. And there's nothing that will erode leadership's capacity to have people follow uh, than the idea that the leader doesn't know where he's going. Uh, so, uh, or, or, and isn't being candid. So I, I, I really think candor is very important. There are things that probably, there are times in national security settings that not everything can be shared uh, because there are national security concerns about those when you come to the governmental circumstances. There may be other things as well, but by and large, uh, candor, transparency, and continuity and in information very important for a leader if he expects people to make a real commitment and to follow. General John, in, in, maybe in leadership in general and in crisis situations, inevitably there's going to be criticism um, of the leader. And I, I would think there, there would be. Would you, is there any ways you've learned or wisdom you would have for leaders um, that maybe they, they, make, they make a decision and they're criticized for it, or maybe they make a decision that it doesn't turn out the way they said, or like you said, they hoped and it didn't, the hope was not materialized. Um, how did you learn to deal with criticism in those crisis situations in leadership in general? Well, the best thing that you can do with criticism is to learn from it. And the worst thing that you can do with criticism is to decide to double down and to uh, um, not learn from it. I mean, to say that, well, I, this is what I, you know, the idea of correction and willingness to correct one's course is, is valuable. 
Now the, the important thing, there is an important thing when you know that there are virtually few things that won't be criticized. I, I, I literally in my, in my life like, like shining shoes and I like making the bed. I make the bed almost every morning in my house because it's something for which I will not be criticized. And I shine my own shoes. I'm a little bit like Abraham Lincoln who was caught shining his shoes one time by the French ambassador. And the French ambassador said to Lincoln, you shine your own shoes? And Lincoln looked up at him and said, yeah, whose shoes do you shine? Uh, so, I mean, the point is that it's fun to be able to do things that don't, don't result in criticism. If you're making very substantial decisions, there will always be a variety of responses and some people will be more pleased with the decision than others, and some people will be critical. Uh, but, I, you know, be busy, be goal-oriented, and, uh, and don't be vindictive as a result of criticism. If you can learn from it, learn from it, try and do better, confess if you need to do better, and we'll do better next time. And if, it's, if you did the right thing in the first instance, it's okay to say, I'm very sorry that we had to come to the conclusion to which we came and to adopt the course of action we adopted. And I'm sorry that that is either offensive to you or not perceived by you to be in your best interest, but we feel it was right then and we, we have to feel that it's right now. But with that, the mouth, you know, back to Lincoln with malice toward none and charity toward all, that's a way to receive criticism and to deal with it. And if you get really busy, don't, don't, don't spend too much time in the criticism. Learn from it, uh, adjust. Uh, as a result of the point, very few times will you be criticized where you can't learn something that'll improve your performance, either in the way you, what you're doing or the way you're explaining it and the way you're uh, so-called so marketing it. Uh, but then I know that for a long time, I was one of the most criticized people in, in the American culture. I, editorial cartoons, you know, I all had a dark mustache and my hair coming here and people portrayed me as Hitler and all that stuff. I was so busy doing what I thought I needed to do to make sure that America maintained its national security that I, I, frankly, I learned more about the criticism after I retired and I could see some of the stuff that was said that was designed to either alter me or anger me and I just had to keep going and doing my job. So I, I think it is important not to let criticism become some sort of agent of paralysis which, uh, which stops you, but let it be something that improves you. Aaron, Aaron, can I ask a question of a different kind just for a moment? It's all, all you. <laughs> John, um, at the end of this, if there, if there is an end to this ongoing pandemic, and I hope and pray and believe there will be, you know, there are at least three kinds of people who are going to really be busy. And those are going to be uh, guys at gyms, at fitness places where we used to go and now we don't. Hairstylists are going to have a land office business, you know, <laughs> and, 
And I'm told that therapists will because of the emotional tension and it, it isn't just uh, physical distancing, it's, it's the capacity not to hug your grandkids or, or, or the inability to hug your grand, so forth. Um, your therapy under pressure, my observation, was music. You were brought up Assemblies of God congregations where people sang their theologies or maybe sang their wannabe theologies or whatever it was. So, or sang their lungs now. Or sang, we may not be good, but we were loud. You know, playing the piano loud was almost near as good as playing. Great. <laughs> and, and so you and I are both preacher's kids, AG preacher's kids, and uh, I would come to your house on occasion and uh, you had a baby grand there in your front of your shotgun row house, couple blocks behind the Supreme Court, and we'd sing together. But it, it was my understanding that often you would get up early in the morning on those days in that in 2001 and, and the following months. And, um, and you would play, talk to me, talk to us, if you will, just a couple of moments about music uh, as therapy or playing as praying, uh, whatever. Just talk to us about John Ashcroft and how he relates to the Lord that way. Well, I uh, I have a big defect, and and it's that I have a theory about everything. So I do have a theory about music, and I think music is something that it transpires in a different part of our brain. Uh, it's harmonic. I think God is harmonic. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three-part harmony. They're different tones, perhaps, but they're never discordant. They don't fight each other. They work together. I think, you know, when you, when you're, when my mother died, there she was in a coma, but when we would sing gospel songs, you would see the tears roll out of her eyes and down her cheeks. Uh, she could respond at a different level. And I think, I think there's a reason that God instructs us to sing because I think he, he knows that we are wired in a way that music uh, communicates to us at a deeper level than mere intellect. So, uh, and I think the great hymns of the church, the great songs that uh, we, we sing and understand, uh, they speak to us. And from the earliest age, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, that song will never be forgotten by me. I will have been able to forget and have been able to forget Virtually everything, darn near forget my middle initial, but I will not forget those truths that have been been uh, programmed into me with uh, with the great songs. So when the Bible says to we should teach with music, just advertisers have learned how to do that. They get their message across with music constantly. What a, one of the things I think it's in one of the books of the New Testament starts with C. It's either Colossians or Corinthians. I don't know. I, that's about as close as I ever get. But 
it talks about admonishing each other with music. What, what a great way to, to shape behavior is to sing virtues into people. And um, I want to sing virtues into my own life. So having a, a, a Christian approach to music, I want and very frequently I get up in the morning with a song, and it's not infrequently that I go to the piano and I play it. And the tune, I don't even have to say the words, the tune drives the, the concept and the words right into my, in, into my existence because the words are inescapable once I play the tune. You know, um, you know our son-in-law, Van, who's pastor in Oregon yeah, and really tremendous musician. Ruth has started making uh, masks because we're supposed to be masked men and women going out into public these days. She started making masks out of old quilting material to send to the family. And Van said, this is like a cottage industry. And the theme song would be mask maker, mask maker, make me a mask, you know, <laughs> but yeah. you, you're, do you remember uh, three or four years ago? I was invited to come to Central Assembly in Springfield to do a legacy camp. That means the people who are showing up are old, like the low end of the scale was 75. And you came over one night and we had a little conversation and you said, let's sing songs. And you went over and I think we sang together. Um, what's that song we used to sing? Now I'm forgetting it. Um, his, his, he giveth uh, more grace. Yeah, giveth more grace, that one. We sang that one. And then you said, let's sing some kids song. And somebody said, how about Climb Up Sunshine Mountain, which none of us knows what that means. But uh, anyway, we deep and wide all this. And then you said, how about I'm in the Lord's army? I'm in the Lord's army. And these older people, you said, let's stand and sing this. Well, this took a few minutes, you know, because when you're not... <laughs> It takes a while. And these people stood up. There were several hundred. And you started playing and leading is I'm too young to march in the infantry, this old Sunday school song that these people would all know. Today they wouldn't know it. And it was a moment. I mean, it was because it took them to a place in their spiritual journey that was um, undeniable. It was encouraging. And we had 20-somethings who were there uh, serving tables, standing up on the back seats with their iPhones taking videos of <laughs> hundred. The median age was 89 and a half doing the motions to this song. Anyway, that's, uh, I just threw that in there because it's just, it, it, it captures what you're talking hey. about. Well, that's good. I, I don't think you can overestimate the value of music. Not only the universality of it, but the fact that I think it is in the way in which we are actually wired, the way we were created, it's, it goes to a level that stays with us in it. I uh, thank you for this opportunity and, uh, and to say, if you ever need me again, call me. You know, I tell my friends, if you need me, call me. If you don't need me, call me. I like being called. John, could you pray for us before, you, before we get off the call? Would that be possible? Sure. Sure. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you promised that where two or three are gathered, that you are in the midst. And so we recognize your presence among us in spite of the fact that our gathering is done 
by digitally and electronically. We thank you for your goodness and we sense your presence in the fellowship of believers. We pray for each person who will be involved in, in witnessing this uh, conversation. Um, plant your will deep in our hearts and so that as we conduct our, our lives, we would let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. 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 Well, I knew you would uh, enjoy our time with uh, both Dick and John, um, General John, as we had that converse, transparent conversation. And uh, just great insight, great wisdom, and uh, I found it valuable. And I'm sure you took some notes and some points. It, we went a little bit long, but uh, when you have uh, wisdom on the line, um, didn't want to cut it short. So appreciate both of them giving of their time and investing in us um, as we listen and learn and we grow in this process. So once again, thank you, um, Dick, and thank you, John, for your investment of your time and uh, your sharing of your wisdom and experience and your friendship. And uh, that was one thing that came right through is the friendship, the genuine friendship that they have amongst each other and um, value, valued um, watching and experiencing that um, on the on the podcast. Do want to take a minute just to let you know there will be another episode this week um, on Friday from Pastor Zach and Pastor Shelley Maddox. We'll be talking about transitions and um, family transitions. They're a younger family and uh, been in missions and now they're passing your church back in the United States, I think you will find it super valuable whether you serve on a team with young families or are you are a young family. Um, they give you some great insight and uh, just transparent conversations that um, are very, very valuable. And we're thankful for that. So that'll be um, coming out this Friday. And then next week, we will be back with another bonus episode. And then uh, yeah, we'll fall back into our rhythm of, of two episodes um, till now until we get done with the COVID situation. I do want to take a minute just to thank our sponsors for making this possible. AGWMAfrica.org, AGWMAfrica.org, for an increasingly redeemed and transformed Africa. 50 countries, 257 training centers, 404 missionaries, 79,106 indigenous churches. Discover what you can do and how you can be engaged at agwmafrica.org. And by Appalachian Spring Dermatology, bringing new life to your skin. Learn more about the medical, cosmetic, and skin cancer screenings and treatments at Appalachian Spring Dermatology and sign up for Dr. Rosenberger's blog at wvderm.com, wvderm.com. And by Central Assembly of God and Pastor Doug Seaman in Cumberland, Maryland. Caring for each person, connecting each story, and celebrating each miracle. And by Dr. Sean Ricker at Cumberland Optical. Dr. Sean Ricker at Cumberland Optical Advanced Care friendly service. Thank you so much. Until next time, providing clarity and life and mission, the Clarity Podcast.